But we need to dive right into our message, and that's what we're going to do. And you may have already noticed the title in the bulletin that says, You Are Greatly Mistaken, which is a response from our Lord taken right out of Mark chapter 12, which I want to invite you to turn to. And perhaps you have heard those words before when you have been proven wrong about something. Like the times when you're convinced when you lost your wallet or your purse or your cell phone or maybe you you lost your keys and you're absolutely convinced that someone else is responsible. You even start to blame who you imagine is responsible in your mind. Like, oh, I know... You know, and I, I do that all the time, especially with the, with the kids, only to find out sometime later that you misplaced the item and you are the one responsible. Has that ever happened to anyone? Or am I alone? Okay, I see a bunch of people nodding their heads. This is a true story. One day I was in the parking lot of Albertsons and I was returning a movie to Redbox that we had picked up for the kids to watch, I believe. And I was in a hurry and it was a really warm day, so I decided to leave the car running so the air conditioning can stay on. And I had set my cell phone down on the passenger seat, the front passenger seat. And I was parked really close, and I was just going to run to the red box. So I got out. I had the DVD in hand, go over to the red box, hit return, put it in. And the only obstruction at that point in time was this giant pillar that was in front of Al- Albertsons. And it was kind of between my line of sight of my car and the red box machine. And so I was returning it, and at the same time I was looking back to make sure that my car was okay. Yeah, it may look like it, but I don't have any Samson strength that, you know, move a pillar and then make it convenient. Could have moved my car. That would have been really smart. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm going through this process, which should only take about 30 seconds in a perfect scenario. But then the machine starts asking me all these questions, like if I want to rent another movie, and I'm like, no, 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 just say you've accepted it back. That's all I want you to do. And then I look back, and as I'm looking back this time, I see a car driving slowly down the row of the car, in the same row that my car was parked in the parking lot. And so now this has me even more concerned. And so finally, it accepts it, and I run back to my car, and and I jump in, and I start to head home. And then I reach for my cell phone on the passenger seat, and it's not there. And I'm driving, right? So you're supposed to be messing with your cell phone anyway. But I immediately turn the car around. I go back to Albertsons uh, and and try to park right in the vicinity where I was parked. And I, I get out of the driver's side, and I do the full army sprawl, and I'm looking on the seat. I look under the seat. Did it fall? I look between the council. I look over the council. I look over underneath the other seat on the other side, and my phone's not there. And so I am absolutely convinced in my mind that someone, someone got my phone. Someone just maybe walking by the car, and when I was looking at the red box, I didn't see it. And so I look over at the Albertsons, and I see a security camera pointed in the direction of the parking lot. And it would have picked up, you know, the visual of my car. And I said, aha, thank you, big brother. Always watching us. No, it was, it was such a blessing, I, you know, to have that security camera there. So I made a trek into Albertsons, and I asked if I could speak to the manager, and I explained the whole scenario to him. And he said, you know, 
There's issues in the parking lot. That's why we have security. Absolutely no problem. Um, I'm going to call the police, and we're going to go ahead and do our best to catch the bandit who stole your cell phone. And I was like, cool, man. Thanks so much for your help. And, and then he goes, well, just real quick. He goes, are you sure it's not in your car? And I didn't roll my eyes at him. I think I did it in my heart. Oh, okay. Dude, I looked and I, I mean, I looked in my car. It's not there. And so I said, I'll go out and I'll check one more time. Well, this time I happened to go to the passenger side. And when I opened up the door, my cell phone was lodged right between the seat and the door. And when I had looked over underneath the seat, it was up high enough where I couldn't see it, and I found my cell phone. And so now I have it back in my hand, and I'm walking back into the store, and I feel so, so stupid. And I, I see him smiling because the, the phone's in my hands, all right? And so I said, I am so sorry, and I am greatly mistaken. I was, I was greatly mistaken. I was convinced in my heart that someone had taken my phone, and I was totally wrong. And this is the nature of our deceptive hearts, isn't it? Our, our flesh and our pride can cause us to cling to something that is not true and believe in something that is actually false. And such was the case with the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12, who believed and said there is no such thing as bodily resurrection. What caused them to embrace this lie? And how would Jesus respond to the Sadducees and their attempt to, to trap him? What dangers would the Lord have you and I recognize from this interaction? Let's see what the Lord has for us and read the account starting in verse 18 of Mark 12. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Pray with me. Father, we do want to be blessed by your word, and we come um, humbly yielded to what you have for us. 
We pray that you would allow us to take principles from this passage that would continue to grow us as followers of Christ. Allow us to see the dangers of distorting your word. We pray, Father, that you would allow us to see the danger of denying your resurrection power and the many implications that can come as a result. And so, Lord, we just commit this time to you. We pray that your spirit would, would guide. I pray, Father, that you would keep me from misspeaking or misrepresenting you in any way and that there would be application for our hearts to grow in Christ from this text. We commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Mark 12, 13 through 17, as your bulletin indicates, Jesus exposes two dangers at the expense of the Sadducees so that we might recognize the hazards of distorting God's word and denying God's resurrection power. Again, the two points are right there for you in your outline. Danger number one, don't distort God's word. Danger number two, don't deny God's resurrection power. Mark chapter 12 could really be considered the conspiracy chapter because every group of leaders that's sent by the Sanhedrin to confront Jesus is conspiring against him in some way. They're trying to discredit him so that he'll lose his influence before the people. They're also trying to get him to say something that could get him in trouble with the Roman authorities that could imprison him and have him sent away or better yet killed. And this is the second wave of conspirators after the Pharisees and the Herodians failed to trap Jesus with their poll tax question in the previous passage we studied. In verse 18, we get introduced to the distortionist. And yes, I made up that word so I could continue to keep my D theme working in, in my outline. But it serves as a, a fitting description of the Sadducees. And by the way, this is Mark's first and only time that he mentions the Sadducees in his entire gospel account. And so it's going to serve us well to make sure that we understand just who they are. Of the several parties in Judaism, in first century Palestine, two dominated Jewish life in general, and the Sanhedrin in particular. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both of these Jewish parties seem to have risen during the Maccabean Revolt in the early second century BC, and despite their common origin, they differed greatly when it came to their theology. The biggest reason for this was because the Pharisees actually accepted a broader understanding of Scripture and Revelation, which included the Torah, the writings, and the prophets, and even their oral traditions that they recorded in the, in the Talmud, in the Mishnah. Whereas the Sadducees only accepted the written Torah or the Law of Moses, which we know as the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. So from our vantage point, we would agree that it was good that the Sadducees rejected the oral traditions right, that, they weren't, that aren't inspired, the, the Mishnah and the Talmud, but it was not good that they rejected the writings and the Old Testament prophets. And as a result, each party has different presuppositions when it came to the Word of God, and each party landed in different places theologically. And here are the three biggest differences. First, the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty, and part of that is because of the, the, the Psalms, and you can see aspects of God's sovereignty and his omniscience, like in Psalm 139. Um, that's a, that's a, a key, key psalm for them. 
and that the Lord controls all things. While the Sadducees affirmed human free will. Second, the Pharisees believed in angels and demons, whereas the Sadducees did not. And third, as our account today indicates, the Pharisees affirmed the resurrection of the dead, which the Sadducees expressly denied. And Acts 23.8 affirms these distinctions where Luke writes, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Understanding this background and these distinctions is crucial to our context. It helps us understand why the Sadducees are going to approach Jesus and try to address this issue of the resurrection. It also helps us understand Jesus' response to them, pulled from the account of Moses and the Pentateuch down in verse 26, as this probably isn't a passage or at least the first passage that comes to mind when we think about uh, defending resurrection in the Old Testament. More will be said about this when we get there. But every believer understands how vital Christ's resurrection and our own bodily resurrections are to the Christian life. Sunday school songs often teach valuable lessons related to biblical truths, like the song, I Just Want to Be a Sheep. You know that song? Or heard that song? It's, uh, it's, it's well known. I just want to be a sheep. And one of the verses says, Don't want to be a Sadducee. Don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so Sadducee. Don't want to be a Sadducee. <laughs> and as funny as that song is, there's an element of truth that is quite sad, actually. Anyone who denies Christ's resurrection and bodily resurrection in general, in general basically takes an annihilationist view, which is what the Sadducees believed, that once you died, you ceased to exist. They were lost and without hope. It was Spurgeon who wrote, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. And we've studied the significance of the resurrection, as recent as uh, Resur Resurrection Sunday, where we defined it as our linchpin of hope. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sadly, the Sadducees denied bodily resurrection, which negated any possibility of them believing in Christ's resurrection. And again, this was due to the fact that they rejected the fuller revelation of Old Testament scriptures, and they even distorted the law of Moses, as we're about to now look at. And let's take a, a look at the distortion. Starting in verses 19 through 23, we see uh, a distortion of truth that begins, in order to discredit this idea of resurrection from the dead, as well as Jesus who had spoken of his own resurrection publicly in his ministry, like he did in John eleven twenty five, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. The Sadducees devised a plot to trap him based on the concept of what's called leveret marriage, prescribed in Deuteronomy 25, Verses 5 and 6. Leveret marriage 
was a practice whereby a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name and memory of his deceased brother. And this also ensured the establishment of his deceased brother's property inheritance, inheritance to stay within the family line. And this, this practice is first mentioned with reference to Onan in Genesis 38.8, who in order to annihilate the line of his brother Ur, or I guess you could say Er, but um, I have a brother Ur, um, he, he's the one who actually erred. Um, he refused to have <laughs> he, he refused to have a child with his brother's wife, Tamar. And here James Edwards provides some great insights into this unique custom of leveret marriage. And for the sake of an economy of words, I decided just to share this with you. He says, the Old Testament boasts of two women, Tamar in Genesis 38 and Ruth chapters 3 and 4, who actually violated prescribed sexual morality to, to ensure the preservation of their genealogy through leveret marriage. In the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha also means hidden books, it's the ancient, writed, ancient writings that are not included in the Old Testament canon. And in the book of Tobit, and there are some uh, writings like the Gospel of Thomas, you guys have heard of that, even in the New Testament, right, that aren't inclu included, uh, nor are they considered inspired. But the book of Tobit tells the story of a woman who married seven men and remained childless. And it's an interesting story. If you ever get a chance, a Catholic Bible would include um, that, that in, in the Catholic canon. And so if you ever read it, it, it actually tells a story about a demon that goes and kills the husbands um, so that they're unable to, um, to, to have a baby. And so it appears that this is where the Sadducees got this, this incredible story to come up with to challenge the, the, the concept of resurrection. He goes on to say this, the custom of leveret marriage was not devised, as were polygamy and concubinage, for the express purpose of allowing a man to have more than one wife, nor to condone sexual promiscuity or immorality. Leveret marriage was rather a compensatory social custom designed to prevent intermarriage of Jews and Gentiles and to preserve honor and property within a family line in cases where a woman's husband was deceased, end quote. Okay, so you guys tracking with me? You see what it's all about? This custom may seem bizarre to us, but it was specifically designed to preserve the lineage and the land of God's chosen people. We even see results of it in Christ's lineage connected to Tamar and Ruth. And here, the Sadducees distort God's purpose for this custom and they use it as a proof text designed to attack what they consider to be a superstition, life after death. And their argument is basically saying that due to the impossibility of a woman um, who, who could have seven, potentially seven husbands in heaven, the whole concept of resurrection is ridiculous. And, and they're coming to Jesus, and, and they believe this. And we, we see arguments like this in our culture. You see, probably one, one of the more common ones is just even amongst the pro-life debate, right? And, and, and a woman's right to have an abortion. And what's the biggest argument that is raised 
Well, what about, what about if the baby being born is going to impact the life of the mother, right? Or if the, the woman's raped, right? That, that's the argument that gets used. And then when you do the research, you find out that that constitutes less than 5 to, to 10% of the total. And so that's a good picture of what they're doing here. They're using the exception, not the norm, to, to prove their point. And they're also trying to convince Jesus that he would be wise not to put his own life into peril because this is the only life you get. This is it. So you would be smart to just kind of come over to our side of thinking, Jesus. Well, how would he respond? Well, this leads us to the deduction in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken? that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. And we have to try to imagine what this rebuke was like uh, for the prideful and well-esteemed Sadducees out in public. Having someone tell them that they were wrong publicly in itself was shocking. Having someone else tell them that they didn't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Well, this was absolutely devastating to them. They held to the law of Moses even more fastidiously than the Pharisees. And this is part of the reason why the Sadducees were serving in the, the priestly roles as it related to the temple and the temple worship because they clung to that law of Moses. Leviticus Everything that God prescribed, it was, you know, they, they clung to it. This was absolutely a shocking deduction from Jesus. One commentator wrote, The audacity of Jesus' accusation of the Sadducees would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing of finance. Scripture, when it came to the Torah, and power, when it came to the Sanhedrin, were precisely the Sad Sadducees' stock and trade, the two matters in which they majored. In magisterial authority, Jesus asserts that what the Sadducees claim to know best, they in fact know least. They are vulnerable not at their weak points, but at their strong points. They have gone astray not at the periphery or in the incidentals of their belief system, but at the heart and center of their beliefs. End quote. Ironically, the word translated mistaken in verse 24 is from the Greek word, the Greek root planon, which is where we get our English word planet. And it means to wander off track or to be led astray. Literally, these guys were on the wrong planet when it came to their understanding of Scripture, the power of God, and the resurrection. And notice how matter-of-fact our Lord's deduction is in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus doesn't even argue the point. He just, he just says it. And assumes that he just says, no, 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 you guys got this wrong. And he starts out, for when they rise from the dead, doesn't even entertain the possibility that there was no resurrection. He says it directly, it's going to happen. And then he goes on to straighten out their view of marriage and eternity as well. 
He even provides a bonus feature. By the way, you guys don't believe in angels? Well, just let me throw that in too, because believers are going to be just like angels in heaven. I mean, if you're a boxer and you're in the ring, this is like when a superior fighter is just like throwing a jab and you're just going, bap, bap, bap. I mean, their just head is just getting snapped back here, you know? And, and here we just, don't you just cherish the Lord? Don't you just exalt in his wisdom? Don't you just see him and you just love him and you just see like he just knows how to answer. He knows with precision. Oh, what a call that is to our life as it relates to us getting guidance from him, right? Exactly what you're going through. Every moment in his sovereignty, every detail of your life, every hair on your head counted, every single thing, every detail, he's right there in it. And he knows and he guides. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is a stunning answer. And not only did the Sadducees deny the existence of angels and bodily resurrection, but let's go back to their counterparts. The Pharisees also believed and taught that eternity is essentially an extension of earthly conditions, including the married state, just under more glorious conditions. And Jesus is saying, you both are wrong. And, and you can be sure that as soon as this, this interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees, they went right back to the Pharisees and said, oh, guess what, boys? By the way, Jesus says your view on the, the married state and eternity is also wrong. And we can imagine how this only infuriated them further. But what are we to take away from this? It seems clear that nobody's going to be getting married in heaven. Does this also mean that those who are married now will no longer be married in heaven? The truth is, this verse seems to create a lot more questions than it provides answers. But after reading dozens of commentaries on this, here's my, my consensus um, with, with the help of others of what this verse is saying. As it relates to the earthly institution of marriage, I believe. And you're welcome to challenge this from the scriptures. And I would be open to anything, insights that you might have on this. That what the Lord is teaching is that marriage will be done away with. And this is why we're married on earth till death do us part. And this is spelled out for us in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And the marriage bond comes to an end at death. Right? And just as death marks the end of the earthly marriage bond, it appears that when we enter into our future glorified state, into our future relationships in glory in the family of God, it's going to be redefined and we're going to take on deeper and more meaningful aspects as we serve God together. Now, I do believe. Our, you know, we'll still know who our spouses, you know, were. I do believe, you know, um, that we're going to know, you know, our believing children and believing family members and that they're all going to be special to us. But what it will truly be like remains to be seen. And we can only go as far as the scriptures allow us to go. And the truth is, here in this point, they don't let us go very far. You know, you almost want to know more, don't you? It's like, Give us just a little bit more. 
Develop this. We want to see it. We saw earlier that the Lord Jesus Christ even um, drew upon the example and, and redefined the family relationship just as it related to his earthly siblings in, in Mark chapter 3, um, I believe verse 35, when he said, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay? And so, you know, there's all kinds of elements. You, this just opens up the, the beginning of the questions. I mean, it made me think about so many things. Don't have time to even, even share, but just even what, what the, the, the physical nature of the body of a child that's miscarried, what, what, what that, what, what that will, will, will look like, or um, uh, an infant that passes, how, how would they communicate? You know, what, what, what is that going to look like? You know, those, are, those are hard questions, Right? You know, and if you're like Liam, he just wants to know, well, we still go to the bathroom in heaven. You know, it's like, there's a good question, right? <laughs> it's like, well, it's related to impurities. I don't think so. I was just like, that's my quick answer. It's like, um, you know, that's the body's way of getting rid of impurities, and there's not going to be any impurity in heaven. There we go. Liam, are you listening? No, okay. <laughs> But, but I think we should all take comfort in the fact that however God chooses to redefine our marriages and our family relationships in heaven, that it's going to be nothing short of perfect. Amen? We, we, we got that. And God's word gives us many, many reasons to be encouraged about heaven. Eye has not uh, seen, ear has not heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9, or Psalm 16, which you hear me quote often, in his presence is fullness of joy. We can just cling to those two promises, and we know that there's no way, shape, or form that you're going to be disappointed about being married or not being married in heaven, okay? We all, we're all on the same page here? Good, good. The main takeaway for us here is to see the danger of distorting and misunderstanding God's word and what it can lead to. Here it led to the Sadducees to deny bodily resurrection. Their misunderstanding of Scripture led to their misapplication. And rather than seeing Deuteronomy 25 and Leverett marriage as God's preservation of Israel, they viewed it as an opportunity to exalt their rejection of bodily resurrection. And we can go back to our Sunday school song for direct application in a gospel context. Don't want to be a Sadducee. Don't want to be a Sadducee. Because they're so Sadducee. And the truth be told, the world is filled with Sadducees. And they are sad, you see. Because they don't have hope. And they don't know the power of the resurrection. And they live in utter defiance and distortion of the truth. Right? They are, in many ways, by principle, Sadducees. At a fundamental level. And obviously this makes us preach the gospel and cry out and, and to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. And just even the, the, the idea that Ryan shared, right, even at the beginning of the message, just like I've never even thought about sharing my own testimony with my kids. That was brilliant. That's like fantastic. Dad, you weren't always a Christian. I mean, that's right. Um, who, who will you share your testimony with this week? Who will, what Sadducee will you identify in your life this week 
that has no hope in the power of the resurrection, and you will spell out what it means that, that Christ rose from the grave on your behalf. That you've been resurrected to, new, to, new, to newness of life. That you're a new creation. And that you weren't always this way, but God did a, a work by the power of the Holy Spirit that he changed your heart when you repented of your sin and when you fell completely at the Lord's feet and you trusted him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and you committed your life as no longer your own, but his. What did he do? How will they be impacted? And some good questions for you and I to ask ourselves is how comfortable have I grown living around people who have no hope in the resurrection. And oh, that's a rebuke straight to my own heart. Because it's easy, isn't it, for us to get comfortable. It's easy to know the fact that we have Muslim neighbors or um, unbelieving neighbors next to us, right? And we, and we get comfortable with that. Oh, we, we, we have to fight against it. We have to battle against it. We have to resist that temptation to be absorbed within the culture of comfort. How does the ultimate hope that I have in Christ allow me to be salt and light in their unbelieving world? Do our lives and how we live reflect our obedience to God's word? Or do people see distortions or compromises being made? Are there any ways that I have distorted God's word to accommodate or compromise my personal convictions? There are numerous ways this can be applied, but the biggest application for us, I think, the takeaway from this is for us to be faithful disciples and faithful students of the word of God. Amen? We got to know the truth. We study the truth just like counterfeiters, right? They don't spend their time studying the counterfeits. They know the real thing. They know the truth. They look at the real bills, and then that allows them to discern, and that's what we need to do. I think that if we're honest, sometimes our, our compromises assist our liberties. And sometimes they assist our legalism. Now, allow me to share one example. Is the practice of homosexuality condemned in Scripture? You can say it out loud. It, it, it is. Yeah, that is, a, that is a hard thing to say in the culture in which we live right now, right? Right, that a person who engages in a homosexual lifestyle and who lives in an unrepentant state of homosexuality is under the wrath of God and the condemnation of God. And this is just one example. But notice the compromises that are taking place amongst churches across the globe. You see? And that's just one example, but it's a good one. Because your understanding of Scripture in this area discloses the eternal ramifications of your convictions, just as it did with the Sadducees and their incorrect view of bodily resurrection and life after death. What they believed guided them to eternal damnation. That's the truth at the most fundamental level. And like I shared in the opening illustration of the sermon, we can be sincere about what we believe to be true, right? And we, my friends, can be 
sincerely wrong. And our Lord's deduction to the Sadducees is quite clear. Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Their problem had two sources. Ignorance of God's Word when they thought they were the ones who knew it best. That's absolutely frightening. Lesson applied. Right? Pastor John, teacher of the Word, right? (laughs) It's frightening. And ignorance of God's power, number two. Almost all theological error related to faith and practice can be traced to one of these two sources, which brings us to the second danger in our outline. Danger number one, don't distort God's word. Danger number two, don't deny God's resurrection power. And here we're going to look at the evidence and then the verdict. First, the evidence. Look at verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Jesus again addresses the evidence of their ignorance of the scriptures by diving right into the heart of the Torah, where the Sadducees claim the resurrection could not be found. And so he quotes from Exodus 3.6. And I shared this before. This is probably not the first place that we're going to start when we're going to defend the resurrection in the Old Testament. But as we're going to see, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And our Lord's logic is obvious. And Jesus is saying it is ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men who have no existence. And therefore, because God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, they must be living And thus the resurrection is a reality. Or put another way, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are nothing more than dust, God cannot now, at this moment, be their God. As Origen wrote in the second century, God is not the God of that which has ceased to be. I believe that what is so troubling to Jesus is how the Sadducees are suppressing the truth here about eternity. When nearly every culture that has ever existed has possessed some type of belief in life after death. One commentator shared this overview, and I want to share it with you because it's just, it's so compelling. The ancient Egyptian book of the dead is full of tales of life after death. The tomb of Pharaoh Cheops who died some 5,000 years ago, contained a solar boat that was designed to carry him through the heavens in eternity. Ancient Greeks were often buried with a coin in their mouths to pay their fare to cross the river Styx into the land of the dead. Some Native Americans were buried with their bows and arrows and horses so they would be ready to hunt when they arrived at the happy hunting ground. The ancient Vikings believed in a place called Valhalla, where they believed they would fight all day. The dead would be raised and the wounded healed every evening. And then then they would feast and drink the night away and then go out to fight again. Even the heresy of Islam looks forward to their version of heaven where every sensual physical pleasure can be indulged throughout eternity. And he concludes by saying, in our modern era, nearly all non-Christian cults and religions hold to some 
view of life after death. Nearly everybody. That's 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 pretty insightful overview, isn't it? And there's actually a biblical reference for this. It was Solomon in Ecclesiastes who affirmed that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Right? In Ecclesiastes 3. That that's a work of God that he so wires people that it's impressed upon their heart that there's eternity in their hearts. And if this is true of pagan cultures, and we see evidence of it throughout human history, how discouraging is it that the Sadducees, those who claim allegiance to the one true God of Israel, would stand in utter defiance of the resurrection and eternity? Is that not just mind-blowing to you? That is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. They disregarded the writings of Job who wrote, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another, my heart faints within me. Job 19, 25 and 27 through 27. It was the prophet Isaiah who wrote, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Picture of resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19. It was the prophet Daniel who wrote, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12, 2 and 3. And the Sadducees gave no credence to the account of Elijah being taken straight up to heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2. And on and on the list goes. Ezekiel 37, the whole chapter. Many of the Psalms also pointed them to resurrection, but they refused to acknowledge the helping hand that God provided in his word. And now, here they are face to face with God's own son, and they continue to defy the resurrection. And Jesus is left with no choice but to declare the verdict in verse 27. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Here, Jesus lets them know that the patriarchs are still alive, as Exodus 3.6 asserts, and like many other Old Testament scriptures also imply. And believers today, we also know from New Testament scriptures that, that speak to us about the, the patriarchs being alive uh, because of their faith in God to deliver them to their heavenly inheritance. And I'll give you one reference, and I'll read it for you. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16, and this is really cool. It says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having, and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Got that? They knew why, why were they were there. They're just strangers and exiles here, like we know as believers today. 
For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Right? We have those words, and that was set upon the heart of those who believed in the Old Testament. We have the words today, as Jesus comforted his disciples and said, you know, I know I'm going to die, and I'm not going to be here, but I'm going to send you a helper, and don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The Sadducees are wrong and have denied God's resurrection power. How wrong? Jesus closes by telling them for a second time, you are mistaken. Except this time, Mark adds Jesus using an adjective that's translated greatly or much or quite, depending on your English translation. This is a mega mistake. You guys have missed it. And the mistake, again, is that same word, planon, from which we get planet. Not only are you way off course here, you guys are on another planet. You're denying it. Oh, how this should captivate our hearts that God in his grace has allowed us to know the truth and to know the power of Christ's resurrection as well as our promised resurrections in the future. Amen? Amen. Because it's true. And it is our hope. Jesus exposes two dangers at the expense of the Sadducees so that we might recognize the hazards of distorting God's word and denying God's resurrection power. Don't distort God's word. Don't deny his resurrection power. And we also see that there is practical benefit of God's resurrection power, as, as Paul writes in Philippians 3, 10, and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You and I know that God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit so that we could know Christ. That's part of our joy as believers is drawing intimately and abiding and getting to know him. We may know him. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says the fellowship of his sufferings, right? And the Lord denied himself. He, he modeled that for us. And that God has called us as believers to live lives while we're on this planet to live lives of self-denial. It's true. And that, that Holy Spirit has also given us resurrection power that, that illuminates our understanding of God's word and that we wouldn't take that for granted. He allows us to see the truth so that we don't misunderstand God's word, but rather we apply it correctly. Yet we must be faithful again as disciples and students to God's word. Are you studying it? Are you applying it to your walk? Okay. It's a pretty direct question. Are you? What's it going to look like this week? How committed are you going to be to studying it? May we not be merely hearers of the word, but effectual doers of his word. Amen? And can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. We need to be. And we also know that God has given us his resurrection power so that we can overcome any sin in our walks with Christ. Is God's resurrection power leading you to overcome your lust and temptation in your heart? Is he leading me, right, through that power? Are you and I faithfully repenting 
and seeking forgiveness from God and those who have sinned against us. Is there any better way for us to celebrate the victory that is ours in the resurrection than to celebrate communion? So I'm praising God that we have that privilege of doing this morning. This morning, Our repentance, our confession of sin, our forgiveness of others, and our reconciliation, they all find their, their roots in the unity spelled out for us in the gospel. Pray with me as we prepare our hearts for communion. Gracious God, we do want to um, pause and thank you for the clear instruction of your word. Thank you for uh, the way that you have continued to allow your word. As we read in Psalm 119, that it is indeed um, how a young man can keep his way pure. It's, it guides us so that we might not sin against you. It is a light to our feet. It is, it is, a, it is a lamp. It, it illuminates um, a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. It is clear, and we want to thank you. We don't want to distort it because that will allow us to go off course. And we don't want to end up on another planet like the Sadducees. Help us to cut it straight. Help us to cling to you and the guidance and superintendence of your Holy Spirit. And Father, as a church family, we want to celebrate communion in a worthy manner. And we just want to have this time right now just to acknowledge our sinfulness and our pride the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the lust of pride. And we want to renounce those lies. And we want to focus on you who has allowed our hearts to be born again so that we can dwell on that which is true, that which is pure and honorable and of good repute. So we pray that you'll bless our celebration of communion. And I pray, Father, that if there's someone here as a believer that isn't prepared to celebrate, that you would just allow the cup and the bread to pass them and that they would wait until they're prepared. We give you thanks and praise for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.